choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 290 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13. Welcome home. Shortly after the spacecraft sliced into the water, Lovell, Swaggart, and Hayes were helped into a life raft. The lunar module pilot first, then the command module pilot, then the commander. And then they were hoisted into the hovering helicopter. You can see the spray, the copper tip, the bear, the swimmer, the first swimmer is in the water. The first astronaut is climbing aboard. And there goes Jim Lovell. That's 42-year-old Navy captain. Veteran of four flights and almost one full month in space. And they're all three up aboard. Say they're feeling fine on the helicopter. And there is the recovery helicopter 66. Famed old 66. He's done this job before and now has a very precious cargo aboard indeed. Three men who three or four days ago, uh, well, the odds weren't too high perhaps that they'd be making this flight today, but they made it. When they get aboard, there'll be uh, brief greetings from Admiral Davis, the commander of these recovery force, this recovery force, and uh, Captain Kirkamo of the Iwo Jima. The band will strike up a March version of Aquarius, which of course was the name of the lunar module. And they were going to play the Fra Moro March, but especially for the occasion, but since the men didn't make it to Fra Moro, which was their target, it seemed a little inappropriate. Uh, they will be greeted, uh, I suppose say a few words, which is traditional, and then down to sick bay where nine doctors will uh, examine them, punch at them, and, uh, look at them, and take blood samples. And uh, then they'll get a chance to rest. After landing on the deck of the Iwo Jima, they stepped from their chopper, acknowledged the cheers of the sailors with bleary smiles and weak waves, and were then whisked below. Four bells. Very good. That's salty. That's very good. <laughs> That's what they did. They got the blue suits. They didn't have those. There's a pause here in the control room. Pier going out there. There they are. Jim Lovell in the lead. And then Swigert, isn't it? That's Jack, yes. Yeah, and then uh, Fred Hayes behind, yeah. 
really improvise, improvise beautifully. You got patches and everything. I want to say a sweet dog. Next, the astronauts underwent post-flight physicals. In addition to Hayes' infection and fever, all three men suffered from dehydration and displayed the fuzzy-headedness and disorientation characteristic of fatigue. And each of them lost a considerable amount of weight. Lovell shed 14 pounds in six days. Following the physicals, Lovell and Swigert attended a party in the hangar deck, but Hayes was placed in the infirmary. And I had a lower urinary tract infection, so I just went to sick bay. Uh, the other crewmen uh, went to a party on the hangar deck. <laughs> that was people in Mission Control celebrating. Uh, because they were so tired uh, for this flight, they did not have the usual splashdown party that they normally had right after flight when the crew was uh, recovered. So we got to attend our, we were the only crew I know that got to attend our own splashdown party because they held it two weeks later. And so we got to attend that. Back in Houston, Marilyn Lovell had never seen a party like the one that enveloped her house at Splashdown. Nor had she seen so many champagne bottles emptied. People were leaning against the wall, unable to move. Marilyn lost her voice, but not before she went out to greet the reporters who had kept a patient vigil through the past four days. She jokingly gave them the old standby, happy, thrilled, and proud. And one of them asked her what the past four days had been like. She said it had been a nightmare. She had never experienced anything like it in her life, and she hoped she never did again. That wasn't the kind of talk usually acceptable for an astronaut's wife. But now, for the first time since Jim became a test pilot, she had no reason to hide anything. Here's a clip of Marilyn Lovell speaking to the press. I'm just very thankful and very humble, and I just I want to thank everyone at Mission Control, all the men at Mission Control, for making it possible for my husband and his crew to return to Earth. Ms. Lovell, would you discourage your husband from taking another flight? Well, I always go along with anything my husband wants to do, and however, selfishly, I, I really wouldn't want to make another flight, but I, I don't really know what he's going to do. It's up to him. You would not want him to make another flight? Well, after this, I don't think I would, no. Is there any way a wife can prepare herself for a critical situation like no. that? No, no. I have never experienced anything like this in my life, and I don't ever care to experience it again. And here is Mary Hayes. No, I've never felt better in my life. Really? Right? 
And here are Jack Swigert's parents. Well, I, I would say that this is the happiest day of my life. I really would. And I'd say that Monday night was the longest night I, of my life. It's a wonderful beginning, a beautiful ending, but I wouldn't give you a two hoops for the interim. <laughs> and finally, President Nixon had this to say after splashdown. After the Apollo 11 mission and man's first walk on the moon, President Nixon said, this is the greatest week in the history of the world since creation. After today's splashdown of Apollo 13, he had this to say. I thought that the most exciting day of my life was the day I was elected president of the United States. And then I thought perhaps next to that was the day that Apollo 11 completed its flight and I met it when it came down in the sea in the Pacific. But uh, there's no question in my mind that for me personally, this is the most exciting, the most meaningful day that I've ever experienced. I feel that what these men have done uh, has been a great inspiration to all of us. I think also what the men on the ground have done is an inspiration to us. How men react in adversity determines their true greatness. And these men have demonstrated that the American character is sound and strong and capable of taking a very difficult situation and turning it into really a very successful venture. The president also paid high tribute to the ground crews and said he will present them with the Medal of Freedom on a visit to Houston tomorrow. CBS. The day after Apollo 13 splashdown, the president did come to the Space Center at Houston and presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom to flight directors Krantz, Lunny, Griffin, and Windler. Nixon said, quote, Three brave astronauts are alive and on Earth because of the mission operations team's dedication and because at the critical moments the people of that team were wise enough and self-possessed enough to make the right decisions. Their extraordinary feat is a tribute to man's ingenuity, to his resourcefulness, and to his courage." End quote. Astronauts have written a happy ending to history's first celestial cliffhanger. From ticker tape showers in Wall Street to witch doctors' incantations in Africa, the world seemed to celebrate. President Nixon proclaimed Sunday a day of prayer and announced that he would fly with members of the astronauts' families to Hawaii Saturday to present the crew with medals of freedom. In the midst of all the celebrations, space officials said that Apollo 14, scheduled for October, will not be launched to the moon until the cause of the blast that crippled Apollo 13 is found and corrected. Today's television audience, according to observers in Europe, may have been the largest of all time. Live pictures via satellite carried the safe return through Britain to the Soviet Union and 22 other nations on the continent and in North Africa. The Pope, watching the landing on television, offered a prayer of thanksgiving. Secretary General Luton of the United Nations said, all men will long marvel at the unmatched combination of skill, courage, and spirit. Before he left Houston, President Nixon picked up Marilyn Lovell, Mary Hayes, 
and Dr. and Mrs. Leonard Swigert and flew them to Honolulu. In the Pacific, all three astronauts, now dressed in freshly laundered blue flight suits, were flown by helicopter to American Samoa, where they boarded a C-141 transport for the short flight to Hawaii. After the astronauts landed, Marilyn Lovell, Mary Hayes, and the Swigerts ran across the runway to welcome the crew home. The president greeted them as well, but he did not run. For the first 48 hours the Apollo 13 crew were in the South Pacific, the media shadowed them, beaming coverage of the welcome home rights around the world. The stories and pictures were uniformly positive, indeed almost fawning. It was only when the astronauts arrived back in Houston that the press coverage changed a bit. At 6.30 on Monday evening, one week to the night after the accident, NASA scheduled a press conference in which the astronauts would face the media for the first time since before liftoff. One of the reporters asked the question that Lovell and NASA had hoped would not be asked. Captain Lovell, the reporter called out from the crowd, what did you have in mind during the mission when you made the remark, I think this is going to be the last moon flight for a long time? Lovell replied, First of all, you must realize our position at that time. We were going around the moon. We did not know what had happened to our spacecraft, and we were looking out the window, trying to get as many photographs as we could before we whipped around and came home. At that time, I had perhaps thought that we should take so many pictures because maybe this was going to be the last moon flight for a long time. But looking back on it now, and looking back on the way that NASA had responded in helping us get home, I don't believe that anymore. I think it's going to be a situation of just analyzing our problems, and I foresee that we can get this incident over with and charge ahead. I wouldn't be scared to fly with the fix. Another reporter asked, Jim, would you want to go back and take a crack at Apollo 14, 15, or 16? Lovell replied, I'm very much disappointed, just as Fred is and Jack is, that we couldn't complete the mission. We certainly wanted to make a lunar landing. Frau Morrow has so much to offer. But this was my fourth space flight. And there are many people in this organization who have not flown and who deserve to fly and who are talented enough to fly. And they deserve a mission. If NASA feels that this team should go back to Frau Morrow, I'm certainly willing to go back. But otherwise, I think other people ought to do it. After a somewhat difficult press conference, next on the agenda for the astronauts were welcome home events including a big parade in Chicago, and then on to a Goodwill World Tour. Next on the agenda for NASA was to determine what went wrong with Apollo 13. This had to be done before anyone else could go to the moon. After examining the pictures of the service module the Apollo 13 crew brought back to Earth, NASA concluded that it had not been a meteor or other rogue projectile that had damaged their ship. The injury to the Odyssey's hull was a clean one, consistent not with an errant rock striking the ship broadside 
and destroying an oxygen tank on the way in, but with an explosion of some sort in the tank itself, which released a burst of energy into the body of the craft and blasted away the hull on the way out. On April 17th, only hours after splashdown, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine formed a commission to determine what that event was. The board Paine appointed was headed by Edgar Courtright, the director of the agency's Langley Research Center in Virginia. Serving with Courtright were 14 others, including Neil Armstrong, a dozen engineers and administrators from NASA, and significantly, an independent observer from outside the agency. The first step the Courtright Commission took was to examine the manufacturing history of oxygen tank number two. Every major component in the Apollo spacecraft was routinely tracked by quality control inspectors. Any anomaly in manufacturing or testing was noted and filed away. Oxygen tank two had quite a dossier. The problems with the tank began in 1965 when North American Aviation was building the Apollo Command Service Module. Like any contractor tackling such an enormous engineering job, North American did not attempt to complete all of the design and engineering work by itself, but farmed out individual parts of the project to subcontractors. The construction of the cryogenic tanks was assigned to Beach Aircraft in Boulder, Colorado. To handle contents as temperamental as liquid oxygen and hydrogen, the spherical tanks would require all manner of safeguards, including fans, thermometers, pressure sensors, and heaters, all of which would have to be immersed directly in the super-cold slush that the tanks were designed to hold, and all of which would have to be powered by electricity. The Apollo spacecraft's electrical system was designed to operate on 28 volts, of all the systems inside the cryogenic tanks that would be driven by the 28-volt fuel cells, none required more rigorous monitoring than the tank heaters. Ordinarily, cryogenic hydrogen and oxygen were maintained at a constant temperature of minus 340 degrees. This was cold enough to keep the frigid gases in a slushy, non-gaseous state, but warm enough to allow some of the slush to vaporize and flow through the lines that fed both the fuel cells and the atmospheric system of the cockpit. Occasionally, however, the pressure in the tanks dropped too low, preventing the gas from moving into the feed lines and endangering both the fuel cells and the crew. To prevent this, the heaters would occasionally be switched on, boiling off some of the liquid and raising the internal pressure to a safer level. Of course, immersing a heating element in a pressurized tank of oxygen was a risky business, and in order to minimize the danger of fire or explosions, the heaters were supplied with thermostat switches that would cut the power to the coils if the temperature in the tank climbed too far. By most standards, that upper temperature limit was not very high. 80 degrees was about as hot as the engineers ever wanted their super-cold tanks to get. But, in insulated vessels in which the prevailing temperature was usually 420 degrees lower, that was a considerable warm-up. When the heaters were switched on and functioning normally, the thermostat switches remained closed, completing the heating system's electrical circuit and allowing it to continue operating. If the temperature in the tank rose above the 80-degree mark, the thermostat would open, 
breaking the circuit and shutting the system down. When North American first awarded the tank to Beach Aircraft, the contractor told the subcontractor that the thermostat switches should be made compatible with the spacecraft's 28-volt fuel cells, and Beach complied. This voltage, however, was not the only voltage the spacecraft would ever be required to accept. During the weeks and months preceding a launch, the ship spent much of its time connecting to launch pad generators at Cape Canaveral so that pre-flight equipment tests could be run. The CAPE generators produced 65 volts, 37 volts higher than the thermostat switch was designed to accept. North American eventually became concerned that such a relative lightning bolt would cook the delicate heating system in the cryogenic tanks before the ship ever left the pad and decided to change its specs, alerting Beach that it should scrap the original heater plans and replace them with ones that could handle the higher launch pad voltage. Beach noted the change and modified almost the entire heating system, but the engineers neglected to change the specifications on the thermostat switches, leaving the old 28-volt switches in the new 65-volt heaters. Beach technicians, North American technicians, and NASA technicians all reviewed Beach's work, but nobody discovered the discrepancy. This was one critical mistake. The tanks that eventually flew aboard Apollo 13 were shipped on March 11, 1968 to the North American plant in Downey, California. There, they were attached to a metal frame or shelf and installed in service module 106. Module 106 was scheduled to fly on Apollo 10, but over the following months, additional technical improvements were made in the design of the oxygen tanks and the engineers decided to remove the existing tanks from the Apollo 10 service module and replace them with newer ones. The tanks that had been installed on the ship would be upgraded and placed in another service module for use on another flight. Removing the cryogenic tanks from an Apollo spacecraft was a delicate job. On October 21, 1968, Rockwell engineers unbolted the tank shelf in spacecraft 106 and began to lift it carefully from the ship with a crane. Unknown to the crane operators, one of the four bolts had been left in place. When the winch motor was activated, the shelf rose only two inches before the bolt caught. The crane slipped, and the shelf dropped back into place. The jolt caused by the drop was a small one, but the procedure for dealing with it was clear. Any accident on the factory floor, no matter how minor, required that the spacecraft components involved be inspected to ensure that they hadn't had any kind of damage. The tanks on the drop shelf were examined and found to be unharmed. Shortly afterward, they were removed, upgraded, and reinstalled in the service module 109, which was assigned to Apollo 13. In early 1970, the Saturn V booster with Apollo 13 mounted at its tip was taken out to the launch pad and readied for an April liftoff. It was here the Cartwright Commission discovered that the final piece of the disaster puzzle fell into place. One of the most important milestones in the weeks leading up to an Apollo launch was the exercise known as the Countdown Demonstration Test. It was during this drill that the men in the spacecraft and the men on the ground would first rehearse all the steps leading up to the actual ignition of the booster on launch day. To make the dress rehearsal as complete as possible, the cryogenic tanks would be fully pressurized, the astronauts would be fully suited, and the cabin would be filled with circulating air at the same pressure used at liftoff. 
During Apollo 13's countdown demonstration test, no significant problems occurred. At the end of the long dress rehearsal, however, the ground crew did report a small anomaly. The cryogenic system, which had to be emptied of its super-cold liquids before the spacecraft was shut down, was behaving balkedly. The draining procedure for the cryogenic tanks was not ordinarily complicated. It required engineers simply to pump gaseous oxygen into the tank through one of the lines, forcing the liquid out the other line. Both hydrogen tanks, as well as the oxygen tank 1, emptied easily, but oxygen tank 2 seemed jammed, venting only about 8% of its 320 pounds of super-cold slush and then releasing no more. Examining the schematics of the tank and its manufacturing history, the engineers at the Cape and at Beach Aircraft believed they knew what the problem was. When the shelf was dropped 18 months earlier, the tank drain tubes in the neck of the vessel must have been moved out of alignment. This would cause the gaseous oxygen pumped through the line leading into the tank to leak directly into the line leading out of the tank, moving almost none of the liquid oxygen it was supposed to be pumping away. For a spacecraft in which engineers maintained a near-zero tolerance for errors, such a glaring malfunction would ordinarily have set off alarms. In this case, it did not, because the detanking method would be used only during pad test. During the flight itself, the liquid oxygen contained in the vessel would be channeled out, not through the venting tube, but through an entirely different set of tubes, leading either to the fuel cells or to the atmospheric system that pressurized the cockpit with breathable air. Now, if the engineers could figure out some way to get the tank emptied, they could fill it up again on launch day and never have to worry about the fill lines and drain lines again. The technique they came up with was elegantly simple. At its present super cold temperature and relatively low pressure, the liquid in the tank wasn't going anywhere. One of the technicians thought of using the heaters to cook the slush up and force the entire load of O2 out the vent line. Level signed off on the procedure. None of the pad test crew knew that the wrong thermostat was in the tank or thought what would happen if the heaters stayed on for too long. But the wrong thermostat was in the tank and it turned out the heaters stayed on for a long, long time. On the evening of March 27th, 15 days before Apollo 13's scheduled liftoff, the heater coils in the spacecraft's second oxygen tank were flipped on. Given the huge load of O2 trapped in the tank, the engineers figured it would take up to eight hours before the last few wisps of gas would vent away. Eight hours, it turned out, was more than enough for the temperature in the tank to climb above the 80-degree mark, but the technicians knew they could rely on the thermostat to take care of the problem. When this thermostat reached the critical temperature, however, and tried to open up, the 65 volts surging through it had fused the switch shut. The technicians on the Cape launch pad had no way of knowing that the tiny component that was supposed to protect the oxygen tank had welded closed. A single engineer was assigned to oversee the detanking procedure, but all his instruments told him about the cryogenic heater was that the contacts on the thermostat remained shut as they should be, indicating that the tank had not heated up too much. The only possible clue that the system was not functioning properly was provided by a gauge on the launch pad's instrument panel that constantly monitored the temperature inside the oxygen tanks. 
If the readout climbed above 80 degrees, the technician would know that the thermostat had failed and he would shut the heater off manually. Unfortunately, the readout on the instrument panel wasn't able to climb above 80 degrees. With so little chance that the temperature inside the tank would ever rise that far, and with 81 degrees representing the bottom of the danger zone, the men that designed the instrument panel saw no reason to peg the gauge any higher, designating 80 as its upper limit. The gauge could go no higher even if the temperature in the tank was higher. The engineer on duty that night didn't know the thermostat was fused shut. The actual temperature inside this particular tank was climbing over 500 degrees. For most of the evening, the heater was left running. All the while, the temperature needle registered pegged out at a warm but safe 80 degrees. At the end of eight hours, the last liquid oxygen had cooked away as the engineers had hoped it would, but so too had most of the Teflon insulation that protected the tank's internal wiring. Coursing through the now empty tank was a web of raw, spark-prone copper, soon to be reimmersed in the one liquid likelier than any other to propagate a fire, pure oxygen. Seventeen days later, and nearly 200,000 miles out in space, Jack Swigert, responding to a routine daily request from the ground, switched on the cryogenic fan to stir up the contents of the oxygen tank. The first two times Swigert had complied with this instruction, the fan had operated normally. This time, however, a spark flew from a naked wire igniting the remains of the Teflon. The sudden buildup of heat and pressure in the pure oxygen environment blew off the neck of the tank, the weakest part of the vessel. The 300 pounds of oxygen inside the tank flashed instantly into gas and filled bay 4 of the service module, blowing out the ship's external panel and causing the bang that startled the crew. As the curved piece of hull flew past, it collided with the high-gain antenna, causing the mysterious channel switching that the communications officer on the ground reported at the same moment the astronauts were reporting their bang and jolt. Though Tank 1 was not directly damaged by the blast, it did share some common plumbing with Tank 2. As the explosion ripped these delicate pipes away, the undamaged tank found a leak path through the lines and bled its contents away into space. Making matters worse, when the explosion shook the ship, it caused the valves that fed several of the attitude control thrusters to slam shut, permanently disabling those jets. As the ship rocked from both the Tank 1 venting and the explosion itself, the autopilot began firing the thrusters to try to stabilize the spacecraft's attitude. But with only some of the jets working, the ship could not regain its attitude. When Lovell took over manual control of the half-crippled attitude system, his luck was a little better. But within two hours, the spacecraft was drifting and dead. These theories were confirmed by tests of another tank in vacuum chambers in Houston. Technicians switched on a heater in a sample tank precisely as Apollo 13's heater had been switched on and found that the thermostat did in fact fuse shut. They then left the heater on just as Apollo 13's heater had been left on and found that the Teflon on the wires indeed burned away. Finally, they stirred up the cryogenics exactly as Apollo 13's cryos had been stirred, 
and found that a spark indeed flew from a wire, causing the sample tank to rupture at the neck and blow off the side panel of a sample service module with it. The only other mystery that had yet to be solved was what had caused the shallowing of the trajectory on the way home, and it was left to the tail muse to figure this out. Aquarius, so these flight controllers concluded, had been pushing itself steadily off course, not with some undetected leak from a damaged tank or pipe, but with wisp of steam wafting from its cooling system, the tendrils of vapor that the water-based sublimator emitted as it carried excess heat out into space had never disturbed a limb's trajectory before, but only because the lander was typically not powered up until it was already in lunar orbit, ready to separate from the mothership and descend to the surface. For such a short-haul trip, the invisible plume of steam would not be strong enough to nudge the lander in any one direction. Over the course of a slow 240,000-mile glide back to Earth, however, the almost unmeasurable thrust would be more than enough to alter the spacecraft's flight plan, pushing it out of the re-entry corridor altogether. Based on the investigation results, many changes were made prior to returning to flight, Three major changes were, first, de-stratification fans were removed from the tank based on analysis that predicted that cryogenic fluid zero-gravity stratification would not result in a pressure collapse within the tank. Two, the thermal switch design was modified to accept 65 volts. And three, the internal temperature sensor and readouts were changed to have a broader range. And finally, to close out Apollo 13, a word from Jim Lovell. I often wondered what would have happened if Apollo 13 was successful. There was no explosion. We landed on the moon, picked up some rocks, said some forgettable words, or seven successful lunar landings. The history of Apollo 13 would have been swept into the dustbin of space history. Yeah, I wouldn't be here probably to talk about it. It's just the same thing, the third time. But for years, I was very much disappointed, frustrated that I could not land on the moon. This was the end of my active space career, perhaps the act of my naval career, and that's what I wanted to do. But then after the years came by, we, we wrote a book first of all called Lost Moon, then Apollo 13, I thought to myself, you know, if we had landed on the moon and come back, well, there, there would be no Houston, we got a problem, which or, you know, failure is not an option. And I said, uh, there, it didn't bring out really what people could do when there was a crisis. And so it finally determined on me that uh, that the best thing that could happen in our space program at that particular time was to have an explosion like this that brought up you know, various things uh, of how talented people are to bring an almost certain catastrophe back to a safe landing.
Salutations from the Lone Star State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 290 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Welcome Home. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 116 are available on the Archive Podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. My sources for this episode were the same as last week, plus Mr. Richard Rasa. He worked in the Apollo fuel cell cryogenic group supporting NASA for the lunar missions, and he was also a primary source for this episode. Well, I am sorry we ran so long on this episode. I'll try to speed things up in this outro. But we have now completed the coverage of Apollo 13. Next week it will be something different. Apollo 13 was the longest series that I have done. And for me it's a big sigh of relief because that is a huge goal to complete Apollo 13. Now this episode also marks the 6th anniversary of the podcast. I want to thank you for coming along with me on this journey and a special thanks to the donors who keep the podcast going. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for the episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. We were pleased to receive five donations to support the podcast over the past week. Paul E. from the UK donated at the Orion level and earned his rocket emoji. Jason C. from Australia donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Chris A. from South Africa donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. James M. donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Dennis K. from Toronto donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. We are still at 218 Patreons with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 269 with a goal of reaching 600 before the year is over. For the 269 of you who have already donated in 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we are giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Matthew Bradshaw. Matthew, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode number 291 posted by next Thursday. It is now T-10 until episode 300. So long for now.